And welcome back to the Outfield Podcast for the first time in nearly three months for episode five. I apologize for the long delay getting you a new episode. Lots of things have happened in the interim, but the wait was worth it because Ben Pereira, a member of minor league baseball's diversity and inclusion staff, he's done a lot with setting up Pride Nights around minor league baseball and helping really work hard to do some great things down there. He talks a lot about his experiences as a gay man working in sports and so much more. We hope you enjoyed the show. I promise you there won't be a three-month wait until the next show. I hope that that is the end of those long waits. Enjoy the show with Ben coming up right now. Outfield podcast for the first time in about three months. Sorry about that. Lots of things happened in three months, but we're happy to be back. We have a very interesting guest, as you mentioned off the top. Ben Prayer works in minor league baseball. Uh, very interesting story about somebody who's done a lot with getting baseball and minor league baseball to think outside the box in terms of how they accept the LGBT community, Pride Nights, and all of these things. Very interesting story. And Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You may notice that um, Ben was on another podcast about LGBTQ people in sports, and I will say first and foremost, imitation is a serious form of flattery. <laughs> hey, we're all about spreading the message here, and, and uh, you know, there are so many stories to tell about the work that happened last year throughout 71 different Pride activations, and Pride really is only just skimming the top of what I do in my role, but there's plenty more ground to cover here. I'm going to say one thing off the top, and this is not an offense to you or anybody, but the word activations gives me the hives, and I'm sorry, I know that's corporate speak, but it just, it made me physically ill the first time I heard it, and that's not you, that's just a thing that I can't stand, so just letting you know that in advance. All right, I will try to police the word activations for the sake of not triggering. Uh, yeah, it is, it, I, I, when I heard that the first time, I went, oh, good Lord, I hate corporate speak more than just about anything else. It's probably why I don't have a job. But it is a word like that. I mean, you could say theme nights or you're not going to use the word I would use, which is gimmicks, but that's okay. It's minor league baseball and we all know what they're trying to do anyway. So firstly, before we get into all of this, tell everybody who you are, what your story is and how you've gotten to where you've gotten in 240 characters or less. No, I'm kidding about the last part. Yeah. So um, my name is Ben Pratt, of course, as I was already addressed. I am currently working in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at Minor League Baseball. And holistically, our job is to ensure that our fan bases are representative of the communities that they call home. Uh, so, for example, if you know, I currently live in the city of St. Petersburg. I don't, we don't have a minor league baseball team here. But hypothetically, if we did, and hypothetically, oh, no, oh, minor league baseball team there. No, wait, sorry, I, I apologize. No, we have a couple that are very close to us. We have Clearwater, Bradenton, and Tampa, but not Boy, one. Boy, that joke about the Rays didn't hit the way I thought it was going to. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. But yeah, so our, our goal was to ensure that our ballparks are representative of our communities. And so hypothetically, let's say St. Petersburg was, uh, you know, 40% female and 60% male, then your ballpark should reflect that. If it's 15% Asian, your ballpark should reflect that. And our job is to you know, help teams come up with strategic ways to ensure they're hitting those numbers. But it's also not only in the uh, 
uh, in the stands that we're focusing on those stats. We're focusing on those stats also in the front offices to ensure, to ensure that our front offices are representative of the communities they call home and the communities that they are marketing to. Uh, under my job, there's I've been working on a whole variety of different campaigns to do just that. And last year, my, my heaviest focus, uh, given that it was the first time ever that the minor league baseball league office um, organized a league-wide pride campaign, uh, was MILB Pride. Uh, that was a really exciting event. Um, you know, it was my first job right outside of sports where I really got to lean into my identity. Uh, and that's, I guess that's me in, in, in short. Uh, and by the way, since you are working in uh, these important offices with this important goal and getting clubs to be more um, representative of their communities, can you get me a job as a play-by-play announcer in one of these places, please? I've been trying for <laughs> bloody years. You know, whatever. representation. How about the broadcast booth? That still counts as the front office, right? Sort of. Absolutely, it does. Well, I don't know. I, you can look at play-by-play announcers and go, oh, wow, they look all the same. Isn't that funny? Anyway, I, they, I will try not to make many jo- uh, jokes about how unemployed I am, but <laughs> when, you go, when you're doing this, you, you have to. It's the only way you could survive. But before we get to more of what you do now, please tell us all about your childhood, your experiences growing up, where you come from, all of that good stuff. Yeah, so I was born and raised in, in Berkeley, Massachusetts, which is a small little farming town uh, in the south coast of the state, about a half an hour north of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and it was a, a small, quiet, homogenous society to grow up in. And, um, you know, I was, uh, throughout my childhood, always had a passion for sports. Um, wasn't the most athletic kid growing up, for sure, but always had a strong passion for the business aspect of sports. And I, I really felt that, you know, if I couldn't, if I couldn't outrun you or, or out strategize you, um, then I was going to be able to, you know, know the game better than you. Uh, and so I, I just made it a point to learn as much as I could about the business side of baseball. And really it was more baseball operations and player stats and such growing up. And I never really imagined, you know, having a career in baseball. Um, you know, as much as I wanted to work in sports, a couple of things held me back, you know, a little bit was on how realistic it would be to get a job in this industry. Um, you know, it's very competitive. It's very tough to break into. And, you know, I had this impression that this was more of a hobby job and I wouldn't be able to actually find success in this business. And that was one of the avenues that was holding me back. But realistically, the biggest avenue holding me back was, you know, the reason when I started to... Uh, you know, envision a career or desire a career in sports. I was in you know, eighth grade, middle school, but about to enter high school. And I wrestled with the idea of recognizing at that point, you know, my sexuality and, and, and I was gay. And I, and I really couldn't see that coinciding in the world of sports. That was very abstract. And it was so abstract because there really wasn't much visibility at the time. You know, I was I graduated from middle school in 2009, and certainly there were figures out there like Billy Bean and Rick Welts, but um, it, it was no, nowhere near where we are today. Uh, we still have a long way to go today, but at least we do have a few um, prominent athletes out there who are existing and succeeding in the world of sport, uh, and who are also very open about their identity as being a member of the LGBTQ community, um, on the men's side particularly, and the women's side we've seen lesbian athletes succeed uh, openly and out and celebrated for, for many years uh, before we've seen, you know, gay male athletes. But we do have representatives out there like Adam Rapone and Gus Kenworthy and, and, and Colin. Um, a, lot of, a lot of good people out there doing good work. And 
uh, certainly now I hope the next generation of LGBTQ youth who are growing up do feel that there's a place for them in sports, whether it be on the field, whether it be in the stands or in the front offices. Um, you know, sport shouldn't be exclusionary. And I think the LGBTQ community has struggled uh, with being excluded uh, in, from this space for, for, for way too long. And, you know, here in minor league baseball, we're, we're turning the page and, and you're seeing lots of other sport properties across across the country and even across the world really step up in this space. I mean, we went basically from the center of the earth to not the center of the earth, but we haven't reached the surface yet. So this is true. long way to go. And you're only one year younger than me. So, you know, we're talking similar times in which you're coming of age. And I have it a little bit differently as being bisexual, not quite the same, but in the same ballpark, obviously. And the other thing that I will say is you're not growing up as a child wanting to be Billy Bean. I don't care how much you loved Moneyball. That's not a thing you were going to want to be. No, I meant Billy Bean. Well, I know, I know what you meant, but like you, you even even then, right? Because right. I, I could think of this as like looking back and seeing no openly queer people in sports, and like, well, there are no role models. But then you go, well, I don't want to be Billy Bean, though. I don't want to be, you know, I never grew up thinking of being a general manager. You know what I mean? Like that, that's the kind of thing. And we'll talk about athletes and being out, particularly in baseball later, because it's an interesting topic, and you get into a little bit of that as well. So. When you start to come to grips with your sexuality, probably around the same time that most of us do, which is middle school, high school, and how do you reckon that with being a sports person? Just, you know, still liking sports, but having this other side and seeing from the outside that they don't go together, and now by the end of 10 years, they do very much go together. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question because it's not only how do I reckon that with sports, it's how do I reckon that with the rest of life, so... Being a sports fan was kind of like ancillary, and I almost had this preconceived notion, I guess, of of what it meant to be gay. And it was almost me being a sports fan almost was, you know, counterintuitive to what I thought being gay was. Um, So if anything, the fact that I was realizing that I might be gay, I was almost like, maybe I'm not because I do like sports. Uh, And so there was just a, a direct contradiction with what I thought it meant to be gay, what I thought it meant to be a sports fan. Um, but it certainly was a struggle and, 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 and tying that identity to, to my passions where I really didn't see any alignment. Thanks, uh, society for making us think that gay people were one thing when they're not. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of media perceptions, particularly in the nineties and the early two thousands of what it meant to be LGBTQ. And it did lean into a lot of, uh, stereotypes and, and generated you know, further stereotypes as to what someone who was gay was, and certainly um, it's a bit frustrating because the LGBTQ community is as diverse as the straight community and any other community. And, um, you know, growing up, I didn't have that representation where I could see someone on TV uh, who I thought was like me, uh, who I saw playing on the field, who I could could relate to. At least in that sense, where I really did feel that I was going at it alone. Certainly as you age, you realize that there are so many others out there who are going through this and we just need to do a better job collectively as a society to ensure that people aren't thinking that as they're going through their adolescence. Well, it didn't happen for anybody. It certainly didn't happen for me, and I was looking for the same thing. I've told the story on this show before about the one gay kid that we all knew was gay. I think he was out in high school and was theater kid, you know, stereotypes, and me thinking, I'm not like that, you know. And also, right. bisexual is harder to, you know, to put that down because you certainly see no representation of that almost ever. 
but I'm, that's the thing. Sexuality is not personality. I can't say that enough. They are not the same thing, and you do not have to be gay and like certain things, etc., etc. And that's still something that everyone's coming to grips with. In sports particularly, and there's been a lot of progress made in this decade, although not nearly as much as we probably should have made. And thankfully, it's a new decade where we can have hope and then look back on the end of it and be like, man, we should have done more. That's just how it works. Uh, so then you then go to college. You then start thinking about your career. And you start to think also about coming out and trying to, you know, put this all together, figuring out what you want to be and figuring out who you are. So is there a story about you coming out that is emblematic of what it meant to you to come out as a story that you think really defines how your personal uh, coming out story was and how that helped you kind of kick on and get past that difficult part to then getting to where you are now? Mm, yeah, I would say yes and no there. I think that, you know, coming out is certainly a continuous process. Um, and so initially my coming out was just simple. It was to a few, a few very, very close friends. And, um, that's where, that's where it began. And that was during my senior year of college. Uh, I went to Florida state for graduate school. And, you know, even though I was out to quite a few friends during my undergrad at UMass, um, I wasn't immediately out, uh, in grad school at Florida state. And there's a whole list of reasons as to why. And, and, and one big reason is I really wasn't sure what the culture would be like there. Um, you know, I was going from a liberal bastion in Amherst, Massachusetts, and, you know, I was intentionally, what was that? found out pretty quickly that Tallahassee is basically just Amherst with palm trees. Um, it's, it, it, it's a college town, and a lot of college towns are creative. Yes, it's a college town, and it was, it was, very, it was definitely also, a liberal area. State capitals, that's another thing that you notice. In many state capitals, you get state workers, and they often align in a certain way. Yeah, it depends what state workers are talking about. The well, Florida legislature today just passed some. Passed well, that's some, Florida. Like, Florida that's men true. run the state of Florida. I mean, you, you, we, we, we have Reddit Florida man for a reason. I mean, the, what happens there? I'm talking about just the city of Tallahassee in general and being a college town. You know, where I went to yeah. Maryland, it's honestly not all that different. You just put palm trees there. And one of them used to be in the ACC and one of them is now in the ACC. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think Tallahassee, I was intimidated by Tallahassee because, you know, regardless of, you know, it being a college town, it still is a very different college culture than UMass. Um, and it's a different part of the country demographically. And I had lived in Virginia for two years, but I had never lived that deeply in the South. And, you know, I currently live in St. Petersburg, Florida, and St. Petersburg, Florida is a whole world different than Tallahassee in the panhandle. Um, you know, Florida is almost like three or four different states merged into one culturally. And, uh, I was intimidated, certainly, heading into grad school, and I wasn't sure if I was ready to come out yet. And, you know, in the back of my head, I still questioned, you know, the ability of being out and working in sports. Um, you know, I think during grad school, I was certainly um, certainly aware that I wasn't wanting to live a life in the closet, but I also wasn't sure how coming out would work. And, and part of me, I think, thought that maybe I got to go out there in the industry, prove myself a little bit, then come out. You know, I definitely didn't have any game plan going into grad school as to how I was going to come out or if I was going to come out at all. Uh, and I got to grad school and a couple of things, you know, really positioned me as, uh, you know, deciding to come out. Um, first and foremost, I during my time at UMass Amherst, I was a part of a student organization called the Association of Diversity in Sport. And I wanted to bring that mission with me to Florida State. And 
um, while I was there, I started a club called the Foundation for Diversity and Inclusion in Sport. And in that, we were having just real, honest conversations about the struggles that many minorities face breaking into the industry and, and, and working in the industry day in and day out. So the subtle examples and microaggressions related to sexism, homophobia, or racism, just to list a few, um, we had really real powerful conversations. And you know, part of me when I started this organization was really struggling with this idea of how can I be asking people to have honest, real conversations if I'm not also willing to do the same about myself. And so that's what motivated me to come out um, at the time at Florida State. And uh, you know, it was very positive reception there and, and, and got nothing but love from my friends and professors and colleagues uh, at the time. And my family as well was very supportive, which I'm you know, very grateful for. It's definitely not always the case um, for everyone. But I guess an, an interesting story about my coming out is, uh, you know, when I worked at Florida State, um, part of my job uh, there um, as a student uh, was to work in, in, in the office. And while I was working in the office of sport management, um, you know, I decided that I wanted to pursue a thesis route as opposed to uh, the practicum route, which would have given me an internship. And I wanted to look at LGBTQ athlete endorser effectiveness because part of me, and I guess part of me in general is always a solution-based person. It's like, if I see a problem, I want to figure out an answer. And I realized that there were a lot of queer athletes who were saying, and particularly Gus Kenworthy had a quote, where he talked about the fear of coming out because he might lose sponsorships. And so I worked on a research study and drafted up a research study um, to investigate the athlete endorser effectiveness of LGBTQ athletes and whether or not um, an athlete's sexuality has any impact on you know, brand opinion or perceptions or purchase decisions, et cetera. And the person I wanted to work on the study with was the most brilliant sport marketing researcher who currently is in the industry, and that's Dr. Jeffrey James, and he's a department chair there. Um, and that was, I guess, the first moment that I realized that, you know, coming out and, and being both queer and in sports is going to be complicated. And even if you are already out and even if you already have grown to love yourself, um, there are still going to be people who you're going to have to teach day in and day out along the way. Uh, and Dr. James is a brilliant man, and, and but he grew up in, in rural Texas, and he's a Southern Baptist teacher on Sundays and has a lot of views or had a lot of views that were kind of yeah it was, it was the backwards views it was just I'm misinformed I would say and you know I, I was grateful that he took me on as his student as a thesis student um and, and collaborated me up with collaborated with me on this research study and it showed me that you know people can grow because this is a person who beginning in the beginning of this study was calling like a lifestyle choice and even question like the need for research like this uh, to come a long way where it was validated and and, and um, really supported by not only him, but the rest of the department. And we really able to come up with some very impressive findings there. And I'm very proud of what we did, not only for the research we produced, but for how far we were able to come along working together. Um, and I think that's, I guess, one of the examples of my coming out that I realized, you know, working in sports, you know, I had this coming out moment via Outsports where I released this article and told my story, and it was very public. And, you know, you might think that it's one and done and you're good, but you, you're, you're coming out throughout your entire life. And there are people who throughout your life you're going to have to work with. And that's really what I learned a lot during my initial, you know, first six months of coming out was that this is going to be a continuous process. Um, I'm going to have to sometimes meet people with, meet people where they are because the industry we're in, uh, you know, it does, it does have a lot of older perceptions 
Uh, oh, you can a lot more diplomatically than I can. <laughs> I'm I trying to diplomatically the whitest. It is, uh, it is one way of putting it, but I think that that is indicative of that people can come in with one notion and then change because they have seen something that isn't necessarily true and they have never been exposed to it. And, that, and when, you, when you personalize something like what you did with that example, which is a really good example, that really changes opinions more than just yelling at people and saying you need to change your opinion, you know? Right. Right. And, and I had to have patience. You know, I had to understand that where he comes from and he had to say where I come from. And, you know, as a as a brilliant mind, he is, you know, I was able to provide research and, and I was able to speak his language uh, to help him understand uh, the LGBTQ community a little bit better. And he was willing to grow because as an academic, you have to always be willing to learn. He was willing to learn and I had to just be willing to meet him where he was at and it was a very valuable lesson to work with someone really early on in my career uh, who challenged me and, and certainly frustrated me at times, but we were able to grow and build a really strong partnership. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what you found with this study. Yeah, so we found actually that really there was no no correlation between athlete sexuality and their ability to be a strong endorser, um, in short. Uh, and that was the hope of the study. And, you know, granted, the scale of, of, of our demographics was limited to just college students at Florida State University. But, you know, I could argue that as a purple state and the majority of students coming from across the state of Florida, um, it is relatively representative of at least, you know, the state's perception. Um, and I think that, you know, younger people, the state's perception, the younger people, the younger people in the state's perception. for sure. But also, as I as you say, like I when I think of Florida, I think of. Let's see, old Jewish retirees in Boca? That's my Florida. Someone else's Florida is not that. And my version of Florida is the correct version of Florida because it's the only place you could go and you can get good Jewish food down there. That is also 100% true. But anyway, the point being, there's many different versions of a state like that, so that's also part of it. But also, I think, I mean, you did this study a little few years ago. I mean, you could see what happened with the Women's World Cup this year, and you would have, like, if you came in thinking, well, it does hurt you, well, ask Meg Rupina. I don't think it hurt her very often or anybody else. So, I mean, you constantly got examples, right? Because Gus Kenworthy had that too. Like, he was one of the most marketed athletes of that 2018 Olympics, right? And yeah, he didn't really win anything. And he's now competing for Great Britain, if you didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I'm sure he'll get a ton of endorsements again in the uh, 2022 games. Uh, yes, that, that, I would imagine so. And again, that, that's what happens. It's like people realize, oh, they're just – you know, the personality is there. If your personality is there, nobody's going to care about your sexuality. And, like, that was the thing. Like, if if Adam Rapon didn't lose, I think it was, like, the athlete credential, which would allow him to go to certain places, which he would have had to if he was in media, he would have been on TV every day, and he probably would have been on the Today Show already. Like, that's just, it's personality is what's going to win out in a situation like this. And also, there's, there's plenty of other examples of, of the higher-level athletes that come out, and you can see that it, honestly... Well, the reason why I think it happens this way, and you can tell me because you're more marketing into this than I am, but gay men largely don't have children. Also, gay men, in many cases, have disposable incomes. So if they also see something with rainbows or people they like or people they know, they might be willing to spend on it. Make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's certainly, there's certainly data that supports that the LGBTQ population does have a higher uh, percentage of disposable income. And therefore, uh, if you market to them smartly, you can make a boatload of money. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's also research to suggest that the LGBTQ community is very brand loyal to brands that support them. Um, so I do think that you're going to, yeah, you're going to see a lot. You're you're slowly going to see a lot more of you know brands, and you starting to start last June. We saw a record number of companies. Um, host pride campaigns and even in sports well, because they realize just... now and, and and i and i don't want to sound like i hate all of corporate america and i don't but some of them kind of realize you might as well just do it because if you don't the backlash is going to be worse than you doing it period and at a point you're just not going to be noticed when you do it anymore because it's just a thing that everyone does right you know does that make sense yeah, no, it definitely makes sense, and and a lot of corporations are hopping on and 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 starting to market towards the community, and you know I think that some people can look at that kind of cynically and say, oh, they're just painting their logos in oh, rainbow, yeah. and, and they're just yeah, and they're trying to just market towards us, just trying to collect our paychecks, and and you know come July first, they're gonna roll up that red that rainbow carpet and, and go back to business as usual, and for some companies, American flag is what they do. Gift <laughs> of of rolling down the pride flag and putting up the American flag on July first. I I don't remember where I saw that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you you will see some companies do that for sure. And I think that um, while that while that can be frustrating at times, it is still promising to see it normalized. Uh, and I do think that um, that's we're still striving towards that. Well, uh, there's still such a long such, such a long road ahead until we actually hit equality the LGBTQ community that marketers can play a big role in just help changing perceptions. Even if it is just a simple rainbow logo you throw in your commercial, um, you know, on repetition, that's going to help change the perceptions. Because if every single brand is doing it, you can't boycott one brand for being I LGBTQ. Right. Boycott capitalism. I mean, you can, you can try. Uh, you won't have a lot of fun doing that. I, yeah, you can I, try I your darkness in the United States. Well, in the United States, it would be impossible. And I mean, even in most countries, like you, even in China, communist you can't do it in china either but i i've heard a phrase once that really stuck with me it was in a music review it was an insincere display of charity and a genuine display of apathy well we moved from a genuine display of apathy to an insincere display of charity in many cases which i guess is a step forward i don't know but i want to get into this with what you do specifically now which is largely working with these clubs and i think you said there's 160 minor league baseball clubs does that by the way does that include like the independent league the atlantic league stuff like that Nope. So those 160 are all affiliated ball. Oh, okay. Because uh, so I, I always think of the independent league and long live the Camden River Sharks, the best team ever that does not exist anymore. So, I mean, when you think about that's 160 affiliated minor league baseball, and then you've got a couple of independent leagues and the, and the, and the collegiate leagues, you know, there's over 200 something teams. So how many did Pride Nights last year? Um, in just minor league baseball, there just were 70, one. there were 71 um, so pride almost nights. 50%. Yeah, yeah. And it was a major percent increase from the previous year. Um, so we had quite a few new clubs join, hosting a Pride Night for the very first time uh, in, tw in 2019. And we're, and we're on pace to see even more in 2020. So in 2020. I have talked about this on this show before in other places. And when my friend Brock McGillis, who is as good an activist for this community as I've ever seen, he talks about how he's not a big fan of Pride Nights because he calls it pink washing, which is, in other words, you slap a rainbow logo on, the gays will come out, they'll buy their stuff, and then they'll go home, and nothing really changes the day after. So for you, as you work with a lot of these clubs, and presumably this year you're going to be working with even more of them, how do you get to them to get them to do a Pride Night first and foremost, but get them to do it genuinely so you don't have cynics like me 
criticizing them for saying, okay, you're just doing it because you can and you can give out t-shirts? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And we thought long and hard about that before we even announced this campaign because we didn't want our teams to just paint their logo in rainbow and call it a night. That would be disingenuous and it's just disingenuous and it wouldn't make any impact on the community and really wouldn't create any change. Um, so we, we, we positioned with clubs that and if you want to be in on this, you have to be committed. And if you want to be committed, the first step you have to do is when you're planning this pride night, you're not plan you can't plan this alone. Uh, so we encourage all of our teams, first and foremost, to establish a pride committee in their local community. So going out to local pride centers, uh, you know, LGBTQ politicians or business leaders, um, connecting with the LGBTQ community in the city and listening to what they want at your pride night. Because what the LGBTQ community might want and need in a city like Brooklyn is going to be very different than what the LGBTQ community might want for a pride night in Biloxi or Birmingham. Uh, and, and you have to be, you know, really aware of your market uh, and listening to your community there. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, you know, our campaign, we, we, we were really proud and, and it was intentional that the campaign started in April and ended in August. Like we didn't just have Pride Nights in June last year. We had Pride Nights as early as I believe April 14th and as late as August 30th. Uh, and the majority were in June, but our teams did throw Pride celebrations throughout the summer. Um, and I think the the last piece there that shows that it is more than just a a campaign that's you know pink washing. And I do understand that criticism. And I do think that you know that criticism is warranted at times. But you know for for our clubs, we were able to raise over sixty thousand dollars for local area for local LGBTQ charities in the area. Um, so I, I think that when looking at the impact we're making, uh, it is much deeper than pink washing. And I think that a lot of people who can get in the space, particularly members of the LGBTQ community, because um, sometimes forget the power of Pride Night. You know, I spoke with quite a few fans from across the country when I when I got the opportunity to visit some of these Pride Nights and listening to the impact that these nights had, even with the most subtle of activations. I did use the wrong word there. Yeah. Now. Even, with, even, even with the most subtle of, of game day uh, presentation. Uh. Um, you can use theme nights. nights. That's yeah. okay. The most subtle theme nights. You didn't have to repeat yourself. We know what you meant. I just had to do that for <laughs> the sake of the joke, sir. But even on, the, even, even on those nights where it wasn't necessarily going all out and doing the most craziest sort of over-the-top, you know, pride celebration, uh, it still had a real genuine impact. And a story that I like to tell is, um, you know, in Bradenton, Florida, I got to go to a game there and uh, part of my job was to go out there and survey fans to understand the social cultural impact of our Pride Nights as well as our Copa de la Diversión program, which is our Hispanic fan engagement program. But anyway, um, when we go out there and surveying these fans, the goal is to understand the success of these nights in metrics that is deeper than just looking at ticket sales or revenue generated. Uh, because there really is no night that an LGBTQ person or any person is going to walk through the gate and is going to have as much of an emotional connection to the impact uh, that this kind of promotion has. Oh, uh, unless, they, unless they really like Star Wars so much that they spend right. all their time commenting on how Episode Eight was terrible. I don't care about Star Wars. I'm just making that joke for the sake of the right. Episode. Right, but that's, that's the analogy I always give. Is I guess there's no Star Wars night or 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 bring your dog to the park night or or bobblehead giveaway that's going to have that kind of impact. And you know, I was talking. You know what? Maybe people like the SpongeBob jerseys. I don't know. 
maybe, but I don't think people are saying like personally, or there may be some, you know, you really can never know. Our, our world is diverse. And I think we've already made that, uh, that connection that someone yeah. might have a real powerful connection to SpongeBob that could be brought to tears through a SpongeBob jersey. Good That's Lord. If, if the world is crazy. People, that we, this is when we need Deadspin because if one of those people existed, the Deadspin article would have been spectacular. And it's a shame we don't have that, but. I, yeah, it would be it would be a fantastic story. Like maybe maybe we should get on that and create some sort of content piece on milb.com, looking at the super fandom of SpongeBob fans, the correlation who, between who went, who went in. I don't know what's a what's the most random minor league city I can think of. I don't. Uh, I can't think of Lakewood, New Jersey. That's not even that random, but I know. I mean, we'll get to we'll get to Lakewood in a second because I want to talk about that when it comes to that that pride celebration. But for you, I mean, what then are metrics of success? For Pride Nights, and as you said, they have to be different for any number of different cities because a Pride Night in Brooklyn is going to be what it is, and a Pride Night in, um, I don't know, Tulsa? Okay, Tulsa, try that. If they had one, I'm just using it as a random city I thought of off the top of my head. They didn't have one last year, but they were scheduled to have one in 2020. Okay, well, I, it doesn't matter. The, 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 our, I couldn't think of a random minor league city fast enough, so I just picked one. But. Fair. but the, the the metric of success then, obviously, you know, me, the cynic, is going to say, I don't really care about the ticket sales, whether you gave away Rainbow, you know, Biloxi Suckers logo, whatever. That doesn't mean anything to me. What's the impact beyond that? So what then did you guys use as a metric of success? Is it just, okay, the fans are the ones that you talk to really enjoy that. We now see more clubs wanting to do this. What is the, there's not a definitive metric of success, but what were ones that you guys used to say, yeah, this this worked out well? Yeah, so our, our study was both, it was mixed methods, so it was both quantitative and qualitative, and to break that down in non-nerd language, that well, means... Well, I know we, what you mean, but, I mean, I hope other people do. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's looking at both numerical questions, so it's like, rate this on a one to five scale, so like, you know, rate your experience the game on a one to five scale, rate um, the feeling of inclusiveness, your safety on a one to five scale, but also it was asking like deeper questions such as, you know, what do Pride Nights signify to you? What do they mean to you in this community? Um, you know, just asking questions like, you know, do you think anything ever bad could happen at these games? Um, we asked just really powerful questions and, and had conversations with fans that on average lasted about 15 minutes talking about their experience in a holistic manner uh, and really trying to understand, you know, what brought them to the game, how they heard about the game, um, why they stayed, have they been to a game before, how many do they go to, you know, are they big baseball fans? You know, we want them to know, are you a huge baseball fan but not a fan of your local team? Because if that's the case, then maybe that's 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 our opportunity for growth here. You know, maybe some of these stadiums do need to directly outreach um, to the LGBTQ community to get them to come out, even if they are baseball fans. And we did find that in some of our markets where fans who had never gone to a game before because they were not sure if it was going to be you know, a welcoming environment for them and their family. And that's where, that's where these Pride Nights play a really important role. And so when looking at the metrics of success, those stories are powerful in determining the success of these Pride Nights because those stories show people this is so much bigger than just driving merchandise sales which we did and or selling more tickets than normal which we did it really has a much bigger impact and hopefully was going to help diversify and change the not only our fan bases for years to come but the perception of the game for years to come i think for a while people have this perception of baseball being kind of archaic uh, and a dying sport and i think we have to be able to 
you know, look at ourselves and look at our communities and ensure that we're really welcoming everyone to ensure that we are spreading the love of this game and ensuring that it lives and thrives for decades to come. I don't know how much love there is right now. I mean, let me be honest. With all that dark stuff coming out about... Well, I just watched the New York Mets fall on their face again and again and again and again. So, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I'm a Red Sox fan, so it's equally as frustrating to see. Well, you won a World Series. You've got nothing to complain about. (laughs) Silence over there. You can complain about nothing forever if you grow up in New England as a sports fan. The only way you could legitimately complain about sports in New England is if you only supported the New England Revolution. And even then, I really wouldn't give you much much of a a benefit of the doubt here. You don't root for the teams I root for, so there you are. Uh, Anyway, the the point now, I, I think, for me, I always think of it in, you know, it's great that the fans can have these moments because pretty much every major league team does a pride night now and even teams in the NHL and hockey is, you know, baseball has this perception issue. as we talked about, I mean, what you can't look at your home run without getting beamed at the next time you go up archaic sport. I mean, baseball is one step above hockey and I've talked about that and I will continue to talk about that because at least baseball has somebody like Billy Bean. But for me, players, that's that's the real that's the white whale so to speak and you talk to some players about playing in these pride nights like they have to wear the uniforms that are gimmick uniforms all the time like spongebob night or uh, any number of other random things that these people can think of but for you like and you've interacted with some players you're not on the ground with them but you're at least closer to this than i would be what what do the players think of stuff like this yeah. Um, so I'm actually I don't really have any involvement with players at all, really, because I'm in my the league office here in St. Petersburg. And as a result, we really don't interact with players much. The players are all owned by, by Major League Baseball and oh. club of interactions with players. Um, and so all of my understanding of any of the players perceptions of wearing these jerseys are all coming from club executives relaying the information to me. Um, you know, it was, it was, you know, for the most part, it was very positive with these players. You know, of course. There needs to be um, some perspective here on some of the players and, and, and gem- demographically where they're coming from. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are, are young kids. They're 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, a lot of them come from, you know, countries that are not the United States. Uh, so they come from all over the world, and all over the world has a lot of different perceptions of the LGBTQ community, as, as we're well aware. Um, but I think that, you know, for the most part... I heard positive stories of players. Um, you know, I heard about players in Eugene who pulled aside um, one of our directors of marketings out there and, and, and reiterated how much this night meant to him because he had, you know, a sister who was part of the LGBTQ community and he really appreciated being able to wear this jersey and was looking forward to sending it to her. Um, our club in Eugene as well, their general manager, um, he has uh, a grandmother who was a lesbian. And he told me the story about how when he grew up, it was very taboo and no one talked about it. And she wasn't really made to feel comfortable, but you know, this pride night, you wanted to bring her out and, and, and welcome her and, and have her speak to players about the impact of the game. And, um, you know, my early baseball players wear a lot of gimmicky jerseys. So it's a lot of silly stuff. We talked about SpongeBob earlier. Um, and these pride jerseys, there was only about four teams who wore pride jerseys last year. I think we'll see more this year. Um, but for the most part, they were supportive, uh, and, and they were excited to do it. Um, you know, I heard about one of our clubs in um, Bradenton uh, talked about, you know, an uncle 
who's part of the LGBTQ community. So a lot of these players, they know someone who's part of the LGBTQ community, and this is their way of showing support. Uh, and I think that you know it shows growth when we can see more athletes who are willing to wear that rainbow on the field, and it's it's powerful imagery to see. It's at least something, considering you know one year ago I think you know my biggest. Uh, takeaway for baseball players is why are all of you like Josh Hader? Why did you tweet this? You know, I, I have to ask you what you thought of that, you know, because that was, I mean, it was a thing for a hot minute, but it was an important thing. And I think it brought to light about a lot of players. And those were Americans. And a lot of them grew up in places that you wouldn't have assumed would be, you know, oh, these virulently homophobic places. Right. So what, what did you think when you saw something like that? And how does that, you know, affect you in the way you try to do your work? Because I know you're mostly marketing fans, but this stuff does affect the players too. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, with, with Josh Hader and those tweets, and I think you see this a lot with, with players and, and, and some celebrities, um, where tweets come out from when they were younger that are just offensive. And I think, you know, I can, I can sympathize to an extent because I can, I, I can understand how, you know, someone who grows up in a sheltered environment might, you know, have these sort of views. And I do think that there has to be room for growth in society, um, particularly am amongst LGBTQ issues. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, I, not to get not to get over, overtly political, but I remember in the last election when people were saying, how can you support a candidate like Clinton who previously was anti-LGBTQ? Well, they come, well, she's come a long way. Like she's now supporting wh where, where I stand today. And I think you have to be willing to allow people to grow on these issues. And whether it be, Athletes, particularly, I think younger athletes when they're in their teenage years, I think there needs to be, you know, room to allow them to grow when they're adolescents. I think, you know, if we had an executive or a general manager tweet that out, you know, say five, ten years ago, that's a different story. But these are young athletes um, who really aren't aware of social media and its impact at the time, or, or or what would happen when they send out those kind of tweets that are certainly indecent. But you know, you have to own it. Um, and apologize and show who you are. And I think that he's you know, been given that opportunity to do that. And um, you know, I, think, I think we have to lead with a sense of, sense of forgiveness and growth because we, we all have our demons. And, and I think you know, with that situation with Hater, it was frustrating. I mean, culturally, it's frustrating to see that stuff because you know, it puts us backwards a little bit. Uh, and, and to even have that part of the conversation day in and day out is frustrating because – when that stuff rises to the top, of course the media is going to jump on it, and it helps, and it, and it helps create this narrative as to what baseball is, what baseball players are. Um, but in reality, there's room for growth, and we have to be willing to allow players and people to grow. The first thing you need to do in order to uh, fix a problem is admit that there is one. And for the longest time, like no one wanted to admit that there was one. And so I don't like dredging up old tweets, especially when you know people were children. I'm not excusing these things were done when they were children, and most of them weren't actually homophobic. It's just that the culture they grew up in was homophobic, and they could do nothing about that, and you're not able to question that. I think I, I retweeted an article recently about that. It deals in more of a broad sense with what it's like, what does it mean to be masculine and things like that, and it comes into homophobia. We talk about it all the time. Uh, and baseball's like that because it's, it's had this issue. It has it almost as much as any other sport. Hockey still would be number one. So congratulations, baseball. You're not the worst. I'm sure that makes you feel great when I say that. Why do you think hockey is so... Because it is definitively the worst, and I can... I mean, I, we, if you want to go listen to that Brock McGillis show, it was on my other podcast, Why Hockey. It's over a year ago. He tells you, like, 
in just point blank like why all this stuff has happened but i've heard stories of stuff it's it's pretty gross i mean i'm not this is a baseball focused show and i want to focus on it here but if you looked it up and if you talked to anybody i mean you you there are stories that are just gruesome and Brought yeah. him on them. Follow him on Twitter. Hit him no, on no, I, I do follow him on Twitter. I've connected with him before. I've talked to him before. But I, I think that, you know, from his perspective as a player, it's, it's certainly unique. And I think if you were to talk to Billy Bean about locker room culture, um, I think you would think it's equally as frustrating in baseball. But I think the NHL as a league, though, has a making the right steps in terms of um, outwardly facing. Boy, congratulations uh, to the NHL. You've impressed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, they, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that because I follow this issue very devotedly in hockey, and it's just well. Also, the thing is, like in in baseball, I don't. This isn't the best metric, but baseball, there's a Billy Bean. Like in in NHL, there's no one like that. Well, and, Kim Davis would be, I guess, the equivalent. But, so she's but she's not. But but Billy Bean is a gen, was a general manager, very front facing, very much involved with the day to day in the sport. Kim Davis is not like that. And Kim Davis has had to deal with a lot of crap because of hockey culture. And I don't envy her task. And I, I'm happy that she's doing what she's doing. And as you have followed the news cycle in hockey in the last two months, this is what has happened. So for me, I mean, that's that's the one metric I see in baseball. And there are, again, there's no current or former NHL players that are gay. None. Zero. In baseball, yeah. there are at least a couple. You there's know? one. There, one. One is better than nothing. Just so. Billy Bean. Well, I mean, and the Billy Bean, the Billy Bean that you just referenced there, in terms of being a general manager, that's Billy Bean, the athletic general manager. I'm referring to Billy Bean, the former player of the LA Dodgers, yeah. uh, in San Diego, I think, in San Diego Padres, and he currently works as a special advisor to Commissioner Manfred. Yes, um, that's right. the Billy Bean I'm talking about. Yeah, so he I mean, never was a general manager. He never worked in a front office. Well, yeah, but I mean, talking there are players like, that, but even like he's still yeah, there. he's the sole he's a sole player, and certainly there are players who well, who are currently Burke, playing. Burke, Burke, can't forget him, but that's I mean, again, we're talking years in the past. But that's yeah. but and I don't like comparing the sports, but I kind of have to because one is so like when you and and, I'll, and the NHL is the is the basement benchmark. If you've done above that, you're doing well in my mind. And the NHL has a lot of issues, and we've talked about this on the show, and we'll talk about it more when there are more people involved in hockey on that. And I, and I do want to say, like, so you see it at the minor league level. Do you, in terms of where you were or where they were when you started to where you are now, what kind of growth have you seen? Is it just, okay, more teams are doing Pride Nights and more teams are taking this seriously, or is it something else that defines the growth in terms of, okay, we can actually do this. It's not as hard as we thought it was to where you are now. Yeah, I know there's there's certainly been growth. I mean, there has been quite a bit of growth just even with one year of me being there um, because teams are now receptive or more teams are receptive to the idea of even having this conversation. I think teams see it as of value. Um, you know, at, our, at the winter meetings this year uh, in San Diego, uh, our office put on four or five different diversity events and all of them were exceeded our uh, capacity limits for the room. Uh, and so we have seen a lot of our clubs really pay attention to diversity and inclusion. I think not only is it you know receptive of 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 what we've done in terms of our pride campaign, but I think as a society, I think these teams are realizing that they have to be more cognizant of these issues um, that face these different communities. And we have seen so much growth. You can look at it numerically in terms of the teams who have hosted pride nights. You know, look at 10 years ago, how many teams were hosting Pride Nights. It was less than 10. And now we're having, you know, potentially 
you know, it looks like in 2020, we'll have at the very least 50% of minor league baseball, over 80 teams across the country hosting Pride Nights. That is quite a crazy change. Talk about the beginning of the decade and where we were and where we are today. Uh, it, it's, it really is night and day in a lot of ways. And I'm excited to see, you know, what we look like when, when, we, when we look back at 2030, where we are uh, in terms of LGBTQ inclusion in sports. We've taken a lot of strides in the right direction. Uh, and there's a long way to go still. We're, we're nowhere near done. And I think that locker room culture certainly needs to be addressed. And my role really isn't focused on on that and, and because we just don't really have any interaction with players. But that's definitely a piece that's going to need to be addressed. And we, we still don't have any out LGBTQ um, players in minor league baseball. And statistically, they exist. Well, they have to. I'm joking. Yeah, there's 160 teams with – an average of 25 players on each roster. Right why not? Why not do the math right now? You said 160 teams, 25 players a team, and that would add up to 4,000, give or take. And so then I use this UCLA study, which is the most definitive study I found, that says you could go, and it's just Americans, but I'm using it as a benchmark because there are lots of different things that go on with. Uh, how the community is represented, but I would assume that it's probably flat across the human population. So yeah. Let's say that that is 4.5% of the total population identifies, self-identifies LGBTQ. That does not include people who haven't come out yet, but 4.5%. So we get down to 180. And then you say that 42% of them are men. Okay, so that would be 42. And that brings us to 75 that's just rough, basic math, right? Yeah, it's a staggering stat if that was the case. And yeah. again, it's probably not like that because you can't use that as a flat benchmark, but that's what I'm saying. It's like I've done this with – and in the, you add in Major League Baseball, and there's 26 players on 30 teams. There are If there are zero openly gay or queer players in any level of baseball right now, that would be the statistical fluke of all time. It's physically impossible. 100%. It's just a matter of making sure that they are ready and – at least the Pride Nights do something in that regard. I don't think that pink washing is a thing unless you really prove to me that you're doing it with an insincere display of charity. And I don't think a lot of them do it like that. I just think they don't know what they're doing, right? So, and I think the Pride Nights could definitely help. And on the minor league level, these are much smaller, more tighter knit communities as opposed to um, the Mets doing a Pride Night or the Red Sox doing a Pride Night. Because those are, you know, they're giant teams with giant followings and, you know, Let's say we're talking about a team in Richmond, you know, again, random city. Much they hosted Pride, though. They did a really good job, too. I mean, that's Richmond, but I mean, like, again, random random city. I could think of a, a thousand of them. Some of them I may have even applied to for jobs but forgot about. Um, another one of those jokes about me not having a job. But the point is, it's like, I think the Pride Nights definitely help in getting these you know, everybody to see what can be done in these communities, see that you're accepted. I don't know what it's going to take for a player come out and I don't know if you're necessarily the person to ask about that but at least for you you've seen a positive response enough to know that more teams are going to do it and yeah and we've also seen you know amongst front office executives like I've had you know five or six different front office executives stop minor league baseball come out to me within the last year and that's been incredibly powerful that you know but no me- broadcasters. no broadcasters I don't believe so I know, but no broadcasters have come out to me okay. uh, personally. I know, uh, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, so I mean, we do we do need that diversity, and so we so do need to get you in. Hire me already. Okay, that's that's part four. I'm done with these jokes now. They're not funny <laughs> anymore. Uh, but that's that's powerful too, is to realize that there are executives across our league um, that previously people thought, oh, there's no one in my front office that's part of the community. 
and these Pride Nights have brought forward some really powerful stories and some great employees who are willing to be open about who they are. Um, you know, one of our clubs in, in, in Staten Island, I remember you know, the general manager's like, I don't, I don't think we have any people on our staff. Well, once he started planning his Pride Night, you know, someone did come up and say, you know, I'm part of the community. I'd like to take a bigger role in helping bring this night alive. And I think it helped change the dynamic and the culture, not only in our locker rooms, not only in our stadiums and on our, you know, in, in our, um, in our seats, but also in our front offices. Uh, you know, as a, as an office climate, we are changing the perception of what it means to be gay and work in sports because people are now on a, on a larger level being more open about it. Uh, and these pride nights as, as, as small as they are in the grand scheme of things do play a big impact. Just that little token of recognition and visibility, particularly in some of these rural communities that this might be the only pride active. I won't use the word activation, but the only pride. You almost did. I almost did. I called well, myself. You kind of did anyway, but close enough. But these, this might be the only place where they may feel seen. You know, there might not be a gay bar in Lynchburg, Virginia. There you go. That's a good one. So when the Lynchburg Hillcats. Lynchburg, Virginia. Hmm. Wondering what's in Lynchburg, Virginia. Liberty University. Yeah, it's a it would be surprising certain, if there was one. If there was, it would be spectacular. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, you so see you that these... You probably picked the winner there. So, congratulations. Yeah, but, and you can see you can see that these nights play a big role in these communities. And um, it's it really is helping change the perception of baseball and the perception of the queer community in the sport. The most I hope that... I hope it continues to do so. And I do hope... Ultimately, even though my job has nothing to do with players, uh, and no, and no part of my evaluation will have to do with players, I do well, hope. Maybe that the it will. The most successful Pride Night could involve a player coming out. You don't know. No, I mean, and that and then it would. Yeah, in that case, it would. But that's it would be it would be a big step for our game to see a player eventually come out. But of course, as, as we all know, it's it's their story, and they have to tell it whenever they're ready. And I, I don't know how long it will take, but I hope it is soon. I hope it's soon too. I, I've heard people who are even more cynical than I am on like when they think players are going to come. I don't think it's going to take as long, but I mean the Pride Nights could definitely start to do something in that regard. Is there anything that when you were trying to do these Pride Nights that was most frustrating for you in trying to do them? And I'm not going to talk about the Sean Spicer stuff in Providence. You already heard about that if you don't know. He threw out the first pitch on Pride Night. That was scheduling conflicts and two parts of an organization not talking to one another. It's dumb, but it's an understandable kind of dumb. So outside of that, is there a, a thing that you tried to do that didn't happen and you were frustrated by? Uh, I mean, a lot of the a lot of this game day planning does fall on on the team. So it's not as if like, oh, I really wanted to have a pregame celebration with this organization and it didn't come to fruition. Um, I would say drag queen throw out the first pitch, something like that. Yeah, there there was drag queens on the field. I mean, there was I forget well, which that's, teams that's at least a drag three queens three out. Three but three I want to say Durham had a drag queen on the field for their Pride Night, and there was quite a few others. Um, well, that's I would, say, I would say what frustrated me more than anything about about doing this campaign um, initially was the doubts. And and for those people who said, I don't know if this makes sense in my market. I don't know if there's enough people in the community who live here. I don't know how our fan base is going to respond. Um, that was frustrating to me to see teams 
particularly sometimes in markets where it makes total sense to have a pride night who just weren't really willing to make that jump because they themselves were having their own insecurities about the LGBTQ community uh, and whether or not they were relevant um, or in, in their market. Uh, but overall, it was positive. And, and the other negative that you, you say you didn't want to touch on is Sean Spicer, but it's not that story. It's not that specific in, um, story that I think was frustrating, but what was frustrating was to see a story like that get such so much press coverage and then see other really positive stories in this really unique, powerful impact that some of these clubs are making in their communities not get the coverage. So when I'll tell you, buddy, if it bleeds, it bleeds. Right, right, yeah, and that's 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 the world we live in, and that was frustrating because you know we saw our club in in Lexington, um, Kentucky. They fundraise, you know, almost twenty thousand dollars. They got a, an award from the Secretary of State, Allison Lundigan Grimes, recognizing them for their service in the community. Uh, and that story I, I, didn't I, I get enough. I to say, first of all, she's not in office anymore, and also she was a Democrat. I'm, I'm just, I just have to say that. Yes, no, that's fair. I know she's There's no longer in office. Argument, it needs to be said because, you know, again, de- again, it's, it depends on where you are. And again, Lexington is also a college town. Just, again, it, I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing, and these things are good no matter where they are. But... I always like to, because you feel like in some cases you have to hedge your bets a little bit because progress isn't linear, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that more than anything else right now, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It ebbs and flows, and uh, it's it's, it's going to be a continuous process, but as long as we're moving upwards and the trend is shifting upwards, then, then we're on the right track, and, and we're certainly seeing that. What do you think about your own, your own path? Because we haven't talked a lot about you in a while, and for you being named to whatever list it was. I'm sorry for forgetting what the name of the list was. Yeah, no, it was Business Equality, uh, 40 Under 40 LGBTQ Leaders. Okay, good. You said it. I would otherwise have never been able to remember that. I'm glad you do. Well, I mean, you won the award. A little shameless plug. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I would shameless plug myself all the time if I had anything to shamelessly plug. (laughs) Anyway, uh, but for you, where where do you see this going for in, in your career? Because you now obviously have a platform and you're doing good things. Do you think this takes a step up to maybe Major League Baseball? Maybe work alongside Billy Bean or something like that? Where do you have any idea where you see this going? Or yeah, so I'm gonna this? I'm gonna push back on that because I think there's a lot of perception that um, you know, oh, you work in minor league baseball. What is the next step work for Major League Baseball? Well, I was I, and, you could have worked in the NBA. You could have worked anywhere. I mean, right, I right, because it was right. most linear. It's, it's it's not, and I think that's had the perception of minor league baseball is that we are subordinate to these leagues, and I and I don't think so. There's nothing minor about what we do, and we have a bigger reach than a lot of these other organizations do in terms of, you know, where our teams are located. And we do touch markets that are really unique. Like, you know, the NBA can have pride nights across the country and they do great work, but they're not touching places in Iowa. They're not touching communities in Oklahoma in. Well, definitely you touch a place in Oklahoma, but that's true. Oklahoma city. You're right. You're right. Oklahoma Sonics, everybody. You're right. You're right. They're no longer in Seattle. Um, but oh, but there, we, we we're not to do much one yeah, different states. Okay. Yeah, we're not, and we're not in the big markets. You know, we're in small towns, we're in small communities, we're in rural Virginia, in rural Tennessee, and and we're doing these in things Lakewood, in places New in Lakewood, in Lakewood, New Jersey, and we're doing these it's activations. A city where it isn't the people who you think would be protesting against the uh, the uh, advent of a Pride Night. Yeah, this is true. Uh, well, I when I saw that story, and I have, and I had family, you know, it's a very Orthodox Jewish community in Lakewood. If you didn't know that, and there was an Orthodox rabbi, some of them are loonies. They do not represent the larger Jewish community. 
they they were the ones who were protesting it, and Lakewood, the rest of them rallied around it, which was very nice to see. But I mean, as I said, th there isn't one flavor of stupid. There's a lot of flavors of stupid out there, and I mean that just shows you, you know, like this this stuff can be done almost anywhere, you know, and and, and that was and that's a positive sign. It's like the you know, I always tell the story of, like, my school got protested by the Westboro Baptist Church, about two people with signs. It was really lame. And there were about maybe 100 students on the other side of the sidewalk, you know. And it's like the counter, you know, like, that, that kind of stuff does happen, even if, you know, the loonies probably get more press. But, I mean, but if we go back to the point for you, I just, what do you see yourself with yeah. not just where you are yeah. now, but where you think you could be next? Because you obviously have a lot that you could do you've, you've done a lot at a, at a level honestly that might even be in some ways tougher than doing it at a major league sports level yeah and for me and that's kind of what i've struggled with over the past you know couple of weeks particularly after getting an award like that you know 40 under 40 at 25 is kind of it's of course incredibly flattering and i'm honored to be recognized to my work and it's also a reminder that you know this work being done in sports is still kind of a rarity where it is worthy of giving an award to someone who's really been only doing this for a year um but i think for me I don't know what's next. That's certainly minor league baseball is part of my future, regardless. And I plan on being in minor league baseball and, and continuing to do the work here for as long as as long as I'm making a big impact. Um, but being 25 years old, for me, the pressure is, you know, I, I, we got to do more. We got to do more. You know, so for at 25 years old, if I was able to accomplish what I was able to accomplish next year, then we got to do even more in 2020. Um, we, we I need to drive larger impact. Uh, and for me, the way I look at what's the next step for me, um, it isn't it isn't linear, uh, as as you were talking about earlier. Um, for me, I'm just looking at where am I going to have a, a, the biggest impact. Right now, my biggest opportunity for impact is here at minor league baseball, uh, and and for as long as it stays that, that's where I'm going to be. Uh, but in terms of where I'm going next in my career, it's hard it's hard to say. You know, I was I struggled to even land this position initially, and it's been. Know, quite a ride over the past two years um, to even get here and I'm just I'm really grateful for the journey I've been on and really grateful to, to work with the 160 minor league clubs I get to work with and for day in and day out uh, and I'm grateful to, to have to make the impact that I'm able to make at 25 years old I mean ultimately uh, that's 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 my goal in life is just to just to do good and, and try to forge a path for the person behind me that's a little bit easier than it was for me uh, hopefully, it's in 160 minor league clubs for a little bit longer. I need a job. And you can't take 40 of those away from me. No, don't, we, don't I don't. Rob Manfred, don't do that. You're going to hear from me, and uh, you don't want to hear from me. Anyway, uh, what are you thinking about for this year? What's different in 2020 as opposed to 2019 for what you're doing with these Pride Nights and situations like this? Not just with more clubs that are doing them, but also in terms of what they're doing. Yeah, so I think you're going to see, and it all depends on the market, really. I mean, some clubs are going to look, I think what's cool about minor league baseball, first and foremost, is there's lots of idea sharing. Um, and so when one club sees another do something interesting, they're like, hey, I want to steal that. Uh, so I don't want to spoil what some of these clubs have lined up for the for the year because they haven't announced all of their promo calendars yet. Um, but you're going to see uh, lots of new giveaways, uh, lots of cool giveaways um, that are pride-themed. You're going to see more teams this year wearing Pride-specific jerseys. You're going to see a whole lot more Pride merchandise because previously I think teams underestimated uh, the demand for this kind of merch. Uh, so you're going to see a lot more. 
gay people have disposable incomes and they like to buy rainbow shit. Yeah, we didn't see any teams last year wear pride hats. So we saw teams wear jerseys that were pride themes, but we didn't see any of the new era 5950 on-field hats with a pride logo. You will see that this year. Um, so there's going to be a lot. This it's, it's going to be a one up. We're also, I hopefully, we're going to see a lot more money generated for local area uh, LGBTQ uh, organizations. We're going to see more teams involved this year. So inherently, we're going to have more charities involved uh, in our campaign this year. Um, our goal is to just do everything bigger, better, and and more exciting. Uh, and hopefully, another goal of ours is to ensure that we're telling the stories of the successes uh, we have seen and we will see throughout the year. Uh, so people are able to hear the impact of these uh, and, and hopefully drown out some of the noise of, of the, the negative stories that are bound to happen, like the Sean Spicers and, of the world. Is there a moment that you're going into that you weren't in before with the Pride Night and you're going like, oh, wow, that I'm surprised by that? If you can even say which ones, because they haven't announced it yet, but is there one? Yeah, I don't know if I can say because I don't think they've announced it yet, but there are some that are – even last year there were some markets. A Lynchburg is one that I always yeah, use that, as that's a shot. That's, that's like, the winner. That's the, that's the one made me laugh when I heard it. I'm like, oh, boy. That's yeah, and they were nominated for, for a league-wide Golden Bobblehead Award for best community activation for that night, not even just for Pride, best community activation because – and, and I look at that market, and if they can do it, anyone can do it. And there are markets next year that you're going to see that are really, uh, you know, conservative in southern markets that you would think I'm, I wouldn't expect this place to host successful Pride Night, but they did, um, and, and they will hopefully. Uh, but you know, even last year we saw some markets where you would think ah, I don't know. One that kind of surprised me statistically was Springfield, Missouri. Like I was really surprised that. Yeah, that's a good one too. That's a very good one. Yeah, I mean, they sold out 80% of their ball, over 80% of their ballpark for their Pride Night last year. So they were not only, a, not only did they have a good Pride Night, they had a great Pride Night because they did better than they did on average. Um, you know, we're going to see, and I, and I do think they've announced this, but Hartford has hosted um, two Pride Nights previously. They're going to be hosting three Pride Nights uh, in 2020, which I think is really cool and really exciting because typically, you know, as you were saying earlier, this is just pink wash and they throw it on for a game. Well, Parker is not going to be doing this three times, uh, which is a really cool way to show that they are all in on this. And, and you know, their team up there is uh, really committed to the cause and they do so much great work in, in the community up there. Um, you're going to see a lot of cool things coming out of minor league baseball pride this year. And um, we're, we're really only just getting started. It's only January and we're going to see even more teams who haven't announced uh, slowly start to announce that they're going to be joining our pride campaign. It's going to be the biggest ever. Last year was the largest pride celebration in sports in 2020 is going to be an even larger one and ideally in 2021 it's going to be even larger we're we're, we're still growing and, and there's more room to grow because there are still teams who haven't hosted pride nights and it doesn't make sense for every market but there are still markets where it's certainly um certainly worth having mm -hmm. so now i have to give you the chance to plug yourself you already plugged the awards you've won but where can people follow you and all the, the social media fun stuff yeah, so everyone can go follow me on Twitter at Barrera31. Uh, it's B-E-R-E-I-R-A-3-1. Uh, it's a little, you know, flip the P upside down, make it a B as my first name. So that's where I came up with that idea when I was wow. like, like 14 years old that making my great. first Twitter. <laughs> See, my name can't fit in a Twitter handle, as you probably noticed. So I, I saw, yes. something different. Yes. So you can follow me on Twitter. You can connect with me on Instagram. It's slash Benjamin R. Pereira. Uh, you can follow me on 
Instagram at Brera31. Um, and then don't bother with Facebook because who uses Facebook anymore? It's 2020. Uh, I can tell you, people who don't like Pride Nights use Facebook. Yes, you're right. You're right. And I when you look at our social media, when we announce when we have Pride Nights, um, it is always such heavy pushback on Facebook. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Announce it on, I mean, you can announce it on TikTok. That would be a better idea now than using TikTok. TikTok is probably the best place in terms of demographic that would be accepting of it. That's such oh, a young well, demographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think TikToks are hilarious and they're also, yes. you know, you, you just wonder who's looking in on those in the, in the time being. Anyway. Honestly, that's a challenge now. We have to have one minor league baseball team announce their Pride Night via TikTok. Uh, I would imagine that that would be tricky because TikTok is a I, – I put it this way. I know what it is, but I would never claim to use it because I have no musical talent whatsoever. And my musical tastes are all 90s alt rock, so who the hell cares? Basically. Yeah, well, we've seen, we've seen a few minor league baseball teams start to join TikTok, and, and they've grown – Quite this is bit. why I would be terrible at social media management because I would be horrific at that. I started an Instagram account pretty much solely to ask people, do you want to come on this podcast I do? Because you're not on Twitter. Yeah, no, it's it's um it's 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 unique, TikTok. And it's a reminder that I'm getting old. I'm twenty five years old and it's like, oh what are these kids doing now? Oh, I never use Snapchat and I never will, but you know. It's dying anyway, so I well yes, because Facebook decided that Instagram stories would be a thing anyway. Yep. Thank yep. you very much, Ben. Definitely getting off topic. <laughs> well, no, that's what happens in these shows. By the end of it, we're just all off in outer space talking about <laughs> random stuff. I mean, you should listen to the hockey shows I do. We're not talking about hockey about 50 minutes of the way into the show. Anyway, Ben, great pleasure. Very, very excited to have you working and doing good things for the LGBTQ community in places where you don't often see it, and that's the best part. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Really, it was a pleasure. Good conversation. Um, and maybe we can do this again at the end of the year when we have all these Pride Nights to talk about and I can be a little bit more uh, open about what we saw throughout the year and, and some of the cool activations we've seen. This is going to be a you exciting... You word again. It must be time to end the show. <laughs> uh, you didn't do that deliberately, but I, yeah, anyway. Uh, the, good, the good part is, though, is that uh, when we have the next show, it won't be three months between them, Lord willing.